This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, which is part of my morning routine, also part of my afternoon routine. Routine saves me. So there are a number of ways that I use Four Sigmatic. In the mornings, I regularly start with their mushroom coffee instead of regular coffee, and it doesn't taste like mushroom. Let me explain this. First of all, zero sugar, zero calories, half the caffeine of regular coffee. It's easy on my stomach, tastes amazing, and all you have to do is add hot water. I use travel packets. I've been to probably a dozen countries with various products from Four Sigmatic, and their mushroom coffee is top of the list. That's number one. I travel with it. I recommend it. I give it to my employees. I give it to house guests. So if you're one of the 60% of Americans or more who drink coffee daily, consider switching it up. This stuff is amazing. That's part one. That is the cognitive enhancement side, easy on the system side, energizing side. The next is actually their chaga tea, which tastes delicious. It is decaf, completely decaf, and some may recognize chaga. It is nicknamed the king of the mushrooms. It is excellent for immune system support. So needless to say, I'm focused on that right now myself, and so I will often have that in the afternoons. They make all sorts of different mushroom blends. If you are doing exercises, I am on a daily basis to keep myself sane. Cordyceps, excellent for endurance. They have a whole slew of options that you can check out. Every single batch is third-party lab-tested for heavy metals, allergens, all the bad stuff to make sure that what gets into your hands is what you want to put in your mouth. And they always offer a 100% money-back guarantee. So you can try it risk-free. Why not? I've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling Lion's Mane coffee. I literally have a mug full of it in front of me right now. And this is just for you, my dear podcast listeners. Receive up to 39% off. I don't know how we arrived at 39%, but 39% off. It's a lot. Their best-selling Lion's Mane coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com tim. This offer is only for you and is not available on their regular website. Go to foursigmatic, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash Tim to get yourself some awesome and delicious mushroom coffee. Full discount is applied at checkout. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. My God, am I in love with 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum. But now... I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and... 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need 
cooling. She loves the heat. And we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now, for me, and for many people, the result, eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40%, and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery, so you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now, my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the Pod Pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to 8sleep.com dot com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's eight all spelled out E I G H T sleep dot com slash Tim or use coupon code Tim T I M eight sleep dot com slash Tim for two hundred and fifty dollars off your pod pro cover. Optimal minimal at this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a perfect time? cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Why, hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where each episode is my job to interview and deconstruct world-class performers from all different areas to tease out the habits and routines, or maybe frameworks, decisions, approaches, who knows, that you can apply to your own lives. My guest today is Bo Shao, B-O, last name S-H-A-O. Bo Shao is a co-founder and the chairman of Evolve, a philanthropic investment firm composed of a foundation, Evolve Foundation, and an impact investment firm, Evolve Ventures. With initial capital of $100 million from the Shao family, Evolve aims to support organizations that relieve inner suffering and facilitate inner transformation. Bo's story is pretty wild. So let's jump into a little backstory. And we're going to go in reverse chronological order. Prior to Evolve, Bo was a founding partner of Matrix China, a leading technology venture capital firm in China, which manages more than $7 billion and has funded more than 500 companies, 50 plus of which have become unicorns. That means valued at more than 1 billion USD. He is also a serial entrepreneur who has co-founded five companies that have either gone public or become leaders in their respective industries. Bo was born in China and was the winner of more than a dozen national mathematics competitions during high school. For those who don't know what that means, it is a huge, huge deal and a very significant feat. I'm going to leave the rest of his bio to our conversation, and we will dig in very, very quickly. The website for Evolve is Evolve VF, as in Venture Fund, Venture Foundation. So EvolveVF.com. He has no social media. We will dig into why that is. And without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with none other than Bo Xiao. Bo, it is nice to see you again, sir. And I wanted to perhaps set the stage by pulling from one of our very first conversations we ever had, and it involves ketchup. It might sound like a strange place to start for those people listening, but perhaps you could provide just a bit of context, and that'll be a way we can jump in. I grew up in Shanghai, China. I found my father was a math teacher. I guess he's retired now. He had always been very strict with me. He had many, many good qualities as a father, which I won't go into here. But one of the things he did not do so well was he was angry all the time and often 
for a certain period of years, he was angry. And also he would unpredictably get very, very angry and get very scary. So I think one day, maybe when I was maybe five, no, actually, no, I know exactly how old. I was around 10 years old. He brought ketchup home in a bottle of a beer bottle. I remember it's a green beer bottle. And we never had ketchup before. You know, we grew up poor like everybody else in China. And I think I stole a taste of it without his permission. And he flew into a rage. I do not remember whether he hit me or not, but it was very scary. And I, I'm sure I cried and it was, it was a terrible time. And then a couple of days later, I came home and I saw him in a good mood. And I think that somehow gave me courage to ask him again, like, can I try the ketchup? Which actually is surprising because after that episode, I don't usually I would not have worked up the courage to do something similar. But in that case, I did because he looked so happy. So he said to me, Bo, you can have, my, my Chinese nickname is Xiaobo. It's like, Xiaobo, you can have as much ketchup as you like. I was shocked. And not only I tried the ketchup and he actually bent down to, to hug me. I remember exactly where that happened. It was in front of the kitchen. I have a mental picture of that location right now. And I don't recall too much. To be fair, I can't say he did not hug me ever. Yeah, he probably did. It left such a deep imprint in me of getting this kind of, I didn't ask for a hug. And he gave me a hug, you know, in a very tricky situation. And that left a very deep imprint on me. Then later on, I found out that I won my first mass competition. I think it was in fifth grade. It was a mass competition involving all the students in Shanghai. Shanghai is like at that time probably a city of 12, 13 million people. And I was like clear number one in that mass competition. And that's why he was in such a good mood? I think so. Could you paint a picture of what poor looks like and what it looked like for you? Because I remember you mentioned rations and things like that, just so people have a little more detail. First of all, I didn't know I was poor. Everybody was poor, so I didn't know I was poor, which is actually a good thing. But the way we grew up is, you know, we, when I was, you know, four or five years old, we didn't always have meat on the table. Everything was rationed, including milk, rice, oil, cooking oil, meat, certainly. Very rarely any kind of uh, seafood. I think vegetable probably was not rationed. I, I can't remember. And you, you get these little tickets you have to carry to a grocery store in addition to the money. And they were making, I think my father was making maybe certainly less than $10 a month. My mother was also making $10 a month as well. So the tickets are like food stamps in a sense? But there's a ticket for meat, there's a ticket for cooking oil, etc. Got it. And you had mentioned your father was a good teacher. And I'd love for you to pick up there. And also, I'd love to hear how and when poker or cards may have entered the picture. Because we were so poor, we didn't have ways of, you know, setting up math. These days, if you understand math, you have lots of tools to do it. But back then, we didn't even have an abacus. He initially started just writing down arithmetic problems like 5 plus 7 or 15 plus 28 on a piece of paper and asked me to add them. He has to write hundreds of these equations and I need to solve them. But then he said, oh, 
he sort of had one day had an inspiration. Actually, initially started with my sister, who was who is three years older than me, and said, "Oh, why don't we use a deck of cards?" And obviously, ace is one, and two is two, and then jack is eleven, then king is thirteen, etc. And you add up the deck of cards. Initially, you actually add up only ten cards, and then to twenty, and then to forty, in- involving one to ten, and eventually to fifty-two, involving one to thirteen times four. The total sum, I think, is 364. And then he would take one card of from the 50 card, two cards away, and ask me to add up the rest. And he would set a time limit, so I have to get it right within a certain time limit. And I think I trained for several years under this method. And I actually became so fast that I think I was able to add up 52 cards under 12 seconds or so. And actually, just to be able to, you know, show the cards so quickly. I was going to say, I don't even think I could show the cards in 30 (laughs) seconds. I developed a particular way of going through these cards. And I think I was doing basically more or less four or five calculations a second. And it turns out, actually, just uh, later on, as I understood a bit more about neurobiology, is that actually it takes about 100 milliseconds for the brain to recognize an image, to be able to see the card clearly and take it in. And then process information takes one-tenth of a second already, or sometimes depending, one-tenth to maybe one-sixth of a second. So to be able to add five cards in one second is probably at the close to the limit of, of human biology, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you absorb from your parents? And maybe it's worth also backtracking for a second and asking the question, what lesson subconsciously or otherwise did you take away from that experience with your dad with the rage over the ketchup and then the have all the ketchup you want hug from your dad that seemed to coincide with winning that math competition i'm still actually discovering how these imprints have affected me you know my experience is that you know and my understanding is that i was so imprintable as a child all children are very imprintable, that I carried away with certain things with me. And that's not his intention. I want to be clear about that. But it's nevertheless is what I carried away with. And one of the impressions that I received was that my value comes from my performance. In fact, specifically to be almost like number one, that's my value. And if I am not number one, then I'm a person with no value. And I feel heaviness as I talk about it because it's such a burden. And it was a creative solution in some ways because indeed I became number one in many things when I was growing up, particularly math. I ended up winning first prize in dozens of national math competitions in China. And I felt safe. That performance enabled me feel safe. I think my impression is that actually I was treated better after that. My father had less of a rage. He was so proud of me. I felt my life changed for the better, significantly better because of that performance. And then as I grew up, I needed to perform well in everything. It's not just math competitions anymore, not just college or the first job, but this kind of almost compulsion to perform 
start to dominate everything, including driving. Like I need to be always on the fastest lane. More importantly, perhaps, I always need to plot the most efficient route to a place. I remember when I initially got my Tesla, I needed to look at the Tesla maps. I need to look at Google Maps. I need to look at Waze so that I can see which map provides the best route that I can look at postmortem and see, oh, which indeed, which one was, was more accurate. <laughs> so the next time I will, I will use this map for this route, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, I gave a lot of pressure to my wife, enormous amount of pressure to my children. It's a very, one of my deepest patterns of behavior. You ended up going to Harvard at 17. How does a poor kid in China end up with Harvard on the map? I understand you won these competitions, but how did it end up that you were able to go from where you were in Shanghai to Harvard at 17, if I'm getting the age correct? I think I came to the US on my 18th birthday, if I remember right. This is largely thanks to my father. He saw it early that going to America for higher education will open up entirely different world of opportunities. So he started working on that very early. And back then, going to America for PhDs were relatively known. Quite a lot of people go because you get you know, research assistants or teaching assistants uh, so that you actually get, get paid to, to study. But for college, there were no such things. So you needed a full scholarship. The reason it needs to be full is nobody in China back then could remotely afford a college education in the U.S. I remember, you know, when in the 1980s, when the China economy initially opened up, people who got rich first were called Wan Yuan Hu, which means people who have 10,000 RMB. That's considered <laughs> to be very rich. You can get a special name. So like millionaires or billionaires that we use uh, now. <laughs> 10,000 RMB is a big, big deal. So actually, even when, when we started applying for colleges, we couldn't even afford the application fees, which is like 35 or $50. So we actually get, I need to get waivers of application fees from these colleges. Really, thanks to him, I applied to 20 or so colleges in the US when I was in junior high school and got into a bunch of them. And a number of them gave me a full scholarship, including Harvard, and off I went. When did you start studying English? Chinese middle school and high school education have always emphasized English as a part of core curriculum. So we did study English in middle school and high school. Now, the teaching quality wasn't very good because most of those English teachers never, no, actually not all of them, none of them have ever been overseas and their accents are, you know, atrocious. <laughs> But, you know, we would learn grammar and all those things. So I, I think I was able to probably read. Actually, no, I, you know, I take it back. I don't think my English was that good. But then I get some cramming school outside of the regular school to learn English. And that helped me. So the cram school, just for people who, who, who might not know what that is, that's like a, an additional night school that you would go to to strengthen your abilities in a certain subject? Yes, that is correct. I remember... My English was always, definitely I was very unsure and not confident about my English until one summer, maybe in somewhere middle school, where I spent probably half the summer listening to a few tapes. It was a textbook called New Concept English, I think from the UK. And I listened to those tapes 
over and over again until I pretty much memorized it. I could even talk not just the text of the the lessons, but also including the copyright, everything <laughs> that the, the, the speaker was introducing the book and everything, you know, uh, Oxford, Cambridge Press, or whatever, all of those things I listened to so many times. I remember it was a, it was a little recorder. It was actually not a little, it was a, like probably the size of a laptop kind of a, but several times thicker a recorder with these plastic buttons and I'll, I'll click rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play probably thousands of times during the summer. And I basically was able to mimic the speaker on the tape and memorized without trying to most of the things that he was saying. And then after that summer, my English just ceased to be a problem, it became something I became very comfortable with. What prompted you to listen to those tapes thousands of times? Was it the pending trip to the US for college or was it something else? No, I don't know why. If this is way before even going to the US appeared on the roadmap. There's a part of me that just really wanted to be excellent, I think. And this is actually a very important learning as I actually in the past few months, you know, I'm, I'm starting to realize because let me explain this is actually important. I have this sort of pattern of behavior that require me to, to be sort of want to be perfect in every situation, which is a burden. And one of the reasons that I was unwilling, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, to let that pattern behavior go is that I'm afraid that if I don't follow this strict pattern, I will cease to be excellent. All the things that made me great or successful will disappear. And then I become lazy and all that. And I think subconsciously, I was holding on to that pattern for fear of that happening. But as I connect, however, now with, I was just talking about is I actually, you know, nobody forced me to do this. And I did it because I, I, there's an innate drive in me, I think, to do a good job of things I touch. And at the more, in some ways, I get in touch with that innate drive, but it's not a pathological compulsion. Like in certain situations, it's appropriate. In certain situations, not appropriate. It's a great tool in my toolbox. It's a great trait of mine. But if I actually have more confidence, this is within me, that's my inner quality, then the more willing I'll be letting this other pattern go. Does it make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I think that if it is your default and you are not aware that you have a toolkit with other tools. And if you don't have that developed self-awareness, then you're sort of sleepwalking through parts of your life with a hammer looking for nails. But as you develop more awareness of your capacities and also the side effects of misapplying the tool, both for yourself and other people, then you develop different strategies, right? And you can also be easier on everyone, including yourself, in certain places. And like you said, there are times when it makes sense to pull out the big guns <laughs> and focus on something intensely, but it doesn't have to be you know, figuring out how to shave 12 seconds off your trip to Starbucks by looking at 17 maps necessarily, right? You can even go one step further that if the reason I had developed this particular coping mechanism or pattern behavior perfectionism is because I have an innate 
inclination because people react to trauma. I use the word trauma, not just uh, referring not to just say one time big event kind of a trauma like abuse, but trauma could happen over a long period of time of a repeat exposure to certain stimulus that does not meet one's need. And I was exposed to a particular situation repeatedly. But however, my sister and I responded to that same situation differently because of our different innate inclinations. Mm. And so it's not a surprise that I developed this pattern of perfectionism that's always there that I couldn't control because I had an innate inclination that's good, but then it became almost bastardized or misused to cope with a situation that was very, very difficult. And the situation was the just overall household dynamic? Is that the situation you're referring to? It's difficult for me to talk about a bit here. And we can always cut things out later. Partly it's because it's memory, but also I want to make sure that if my parents ever hear this, they, they know that I love them dearly and they've done so much good for me. But there are certain things that simply one needs were not met. And one of the situations was and my, my father was angry and very demanding and very controlling to the extreme. And also he was physically punishing as well. So I was scared. I was scared, I think, to the end of my wits, I think. And some of this rage becomes at, at very unpredictable times. So I think I was constantly vigilant and constantly making sure I was performing. And also another thing that in the family dynamics was that there was very little attention paid to how I feel. So the feelings were, for the longest time, I treated feelings like an emotional evolutionary waste product, like an appendix. <laughs> you know, rationality and analytics is what I'm built for, and emotions just gets in the way, and it serves no purpose. So I think for a long time, until I was probably my, maybe the first time I met my wife, I don't think I had many feelings. I didn't know what they were, really. Just to speak to that, because I think you know, part of the reason we bonded and ended up speaking for as long a time as we did when we first met is that that's, I think, some shared experience that we have in the sense that when you think emotions are a liability, you compartmentalize or dissociate in such a way to focus on the things that you feel you can control and apply like rationality right and becoming yes. as vulcan like as possible but over time and i'm sure we'll talk more about this things have a tendency to squeeze out the corners even if you think you've put them in a nice tidy little little Absolutely. box yeah i would love to come back to your chronology just a little bit and we're going to dip in and out of a lot of these topics when you first came to the united states do you remember what things or any things that were very surprising to you, whether about the U.S. in general, about the students you ran into, anything at all? Did anything jump out at you as incredible, unbelievable, confusing? There was too many things to count, really. I came from a country back then in 1991 where people didn't even have phones in their homes, most people. And when I had to call home, I needed to make sure I arranged a time with my parents over regular mail or over the previous phone call so that they can go to my neighbor who had a phone uh, and they will wait by the phone when I call. 
But when I got to the US, I remember I was just, you know, some, I guess, vignettes might be illustrative was uh, that when I landed in Los Angeles on my way to Boston, I needed to call home to make sure that they know that I'm okay. And by the way, just to, you know, it's hard to for me imagine now that my oldest daughter is off to college to imagine a parent sending their kids off to college, knowing that they may never see him again. So I'm going to America. It was, it's a, it's, it's not just getting on a flight. You, you, seriously, they, they may never see me again. The courage they displayed and the selflessness they displayed was, is breathtaking. When I called home from Los Angeles airport, I was using a public phone, which is the first time I've ever probably seen a public phone. I remember having putting maybe several dollars worth of quarters into the phone, but the phone refused to connect. And I put more money in, it was still refused to connect. So eventually I became frustrated and I switched to the phone next to it. And that payphone worked. I put in a couple of dollars or something like that and connected and told them I was okay. And as I was on the phone, a cleaning lady came by, was cleaning all the phones, and she puts her finger into the coin return slot, which I didn't even know existed, by the way, until she, she put her finger in uh, into the phone that I was uh, previously using. And she got out a whole handful of quarters, probably, you know, $10 worth of quarters. And <laughs> she was so happy. She looked at me and smiled. And, you know, it took me several days, maybe weeks after I arrived in Boston to realize, actually, those quarters were mine. <laughs> I think the, 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 the phone must have been full or something, or malfunctioning. So all the quarters I put into the previous phone basically went straight down into the return slot. But I didn't realize it. And, and it took me several days, at least, probably longer, to say, oh, one day, but, oh, that's what happened. She was taking my money. <laughs> <laughs> What did that feel like to you? <laughs> and uh, if, if you could describe also as you've continued on your journey, what that was like. I think this is important connective tissue for some of the rest of the avenues that we'll be exploring. When I got to Harvard, my focus was on grades. I needed to be number one. <laughs> so I remember taking as many classes I could, the normal course load was four courses. How many non-Chinese had you met before you got to the U.S.? Had you met many non-Chinese? I think I met, really spent time with, was one non-Chinese person. And his name was Nicholas Kristof, as a New York Times columnist. And now I think he just announced he's running for the governor of Oregon. But back then, he was living in Beijing as a journalist. And he was interviewing for Harvard. He was a, an, a, an alumnus who was interviewing folks. Yes. Got it. And I think I took the first train ride alone to go to from Shanghai to Beijing to, to meet him, to be interviewed. So I think he was the only non-Chinese person that I met. I might have met a cousin who was born in America who came back to China. But as far as a white person <laughs> who was concerned. Yeah, I think he was the first one. So then you get to Harvard and you're like, oh my God, there's so many Lao Wai. And then you're like, wait a second, I'm Lao Wai. 
Yeah, I think I, I was so out of it. I was so unsophisticated that none of these thoughts much occurred to me. I was just so focused on studying. I just needed to study. You just had blinders on. You're like, yeah. people from all over the world, whatever, distraction. Yeah. We'll yeah. focus and, on grades. One of the first classes I needed to take was expose, which is a writing class, which is supposed to be a hellish, difficult a writing class for college entrance uh, for freshmen. And I did very well. I think my first essay was read to the class, which is pretty amazing because I'd never written an English essay before until that point, not counting the application essays. The first essay got an A, but eventually my whole grade for the course was A minus. And I was very unhappy about that. <laughs> I, remember, I remember calling the professor and complaining that how he could give me an A minus. <laughs> <laughs> how dare how dare that professor <laughs> and, and and he was very confused he said hey Mike, it's really good I'm, it's amazing that you're writing so well blah 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 but i said well but i write well why not getting a minus i was so focused on grades at the time just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably AG1 by Athletic Greens. If you're traveling, if you're just busy, if you're not sure if your meals are where they should be, it covers your bases. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'll be hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense formula on the market. It has a multivitamin, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens. You get the idea. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. I want to flash forward and I'll often bookend things like this because I want to, in part, flesh out the picture in the mind's eye for listeners of China because it's very easy to look at the other, whatever the other is, and be like, well, all people in Afghanistan X, the Chinese Y, the Americans Z. And I'd like to sort of humanize a bit also Chinese people because China is not as much as people might think so in the Western world, it's not uniform top to bottom, east to west. There's a lot that happens in China, many differences regionally and so on. But you're helping, so present day, in the last few years, you're helping bring MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to China. I would like to hear you describe why you are doing that and why you think it's important, why it applies and this will just be a way 
of also edging into a couple of different topics. And then we're going to go back to your bio and begin to talk about BCG and 1999 and consulting projects for the Singaporean government. We're going to go there. But first, I want to just ask, why MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in China or to China? We are trying to work on it, though, and I'm not sure we, how much progress we are making. But it's a very worthwhile effort for us because, in some ways, people everywhere share most of the similar aspirations. And regardless of their color or social economic status, go through very similar traumas in some ways. As I got to know many of my fellow countrymen over the years, particularly the successful ones, actually, as they share some of the stories about themselves that they never told other people, that we all have so much hurt inside of us and everywhere. And these hurts could be, some could be very easily felt. Some of it is deeply buried and maybe even subconscious. So many people, and I, you know, I would say so many of us, because I'm certainly one of them, develop certain views of oneself that we somehow think that we're something wrong with us, that we are not worthwhile, that we have no value other than the things we do. And it's just breathtaking how much suffering there is. And I use the word suffering in the Buddhist sense, even though I'm not a Buddhist. And so MDMA and other psychedelic medicine that have huge healing potential that I feel really passionate about bringing that to the world, help bring that. And certainly I'm not the main person doing it. I, can, I like to contribute where I can to bring that to the world, including China. And in China in particular, China went through some very tough periods after World War II. There's a period called the Cultural Revolution. And prior to that, there's a rightist movement, anti-rightist movement, that lasted more or less for 15 years, that really traumatized an entire generation of people. Can you speak to what that trauma looked like? Because I think a lot of folks listening will not have they won't be able to conjure any sort of images of what happened during either of those. I could start with something personal. Was in my family, my grandparents' family were relatively well-to-do. So when the Cultural Revolution came, Red Guards will come from house to house to search for all the valuables. You have to give them up. Every single thing you have, if the Red Guards want it, you have to give it. And there are stories of people as I was growing up heard that, you know, some people bury some treasures in the backyard because they didn't want to give it up. And then red guards will come and pour water on the backyard. And when the water sinks in a particular place, they will dig it up. You know, obviously they will confiscate that and probably either torture or kill the people who try to bury it, imprison the people who try to bury it. So it was this incredible terror that happened to people. And then there was also this race to show your purity, your ideological purity toward these sort of proletarian, what do you call it? Proletarian? Uh, what's the right? Proletariats. Yeah, proletariat revolution. <laughs> so you have to chant the right things and you have to, in every turn. Yeah, the proletariat, the workers of the working class people regarded collectively. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. You have to chant. You have to follow all the dictates from Chairman Mao. 
in the middle of the night, you might be forced to get up and you cannot complain. If you complain, you are disloyal to go on the streets at two o'clock in the morning to, to march and to, to shout slogans at the top of your lungs. There's a real story that my, my father actually tried to help somebody, somebody who's a good teacher was denounced of being, not being loyal to the party. And he spoke up for this person and then he got in trouble for it. And later on, much to his dismay and disappointment and anger, this person made up stories about him. Instead of being grateful and helping him, the other victim actually made up stories about my father to protect himself. Because the more you denounce other people and tell secrets about other people, the more protected you are, you show your loyalty. So it, during Cultural Revolution, many children were forced to tell on their parents. And that created, you can imagine the amount of distrust that creates amongst everybody. Terrible. They were so scared. And my father was put on for a few times because he came from a rich family and also because I think he helped this other person. He was put on, on a platform in front of hundreds of people denouncing him, spitting on him. He would wear tall hats that could be very heavy for hours while standing in front of hundreds of people denouncing, shouting things at him. He wasn't, you know, didn't get the worst deal. There were people who got more or less lynched, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And millions, I think it was millions of people were sent to the countryside to do manual labor, to reform their thinking. <laughs> it was really, this is all from secondhand because I was too young. I was only a few years. Some of it happened before I was born, but other times it was I was maybe one or two years old. So this is all through secondhand. But, but there's so many stories. And this is a period of time that is not often discussed, but... I would say this whole country has PTSD. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to imagine going through that. I mean, war, of course, can be very traumatic in a physical form, of course, and very scary. But when a country goes through this kind of internal convulsion where people are betraying each other left and right every single day, it's hard to imagine the impact on the psyche of a generation of people. Thank you for sharing all that context. I think this is really important on a number of levels, I think, for people to gain an appreciation of. And I say people, probably referring to those who haven't had firsthand experience. One film that may be interesting to folks, and I don't know if you've seen it. I'd be curious to hear if you have, but there is a Chinese filmmaker named, I don't know the tones on his name, but Zhang Yimou, Y-I-M-O-U. And he made a film called To Live, which is, uh, I guess, Huajia, that was initially denied theatrical release in mainland China, but later, I believe, was made available. And it covers the working class experience through a number of very difficult periods of modern Chinese history from the Chinese Civil War in the late 1940s to the Cultural Revolution. And Zhang Yimou has a beautiful cinematography style. It's usually very color-saturated and stars a number of folks who have appeared in many of his films, like Gong Li, mm -hmm. 
who I had a crush on when I was in China <laughs> in 96. Oh my God. Uh, but that's also an option for people who might want to. This film, To Live, was made uh, or released in 1994, so people can, uh, can try to find it. Mm. I'd love to come back to your experience in the US. So we flash then to say, and you tell me if this is the right place to start. Maybe there are things that happened beforehand that are worth noting, but it seems like you have your first job, sort of real official job, BCG, where you're, you're giving, uh, your mandate is to give advice to these, these big companies and we're paying you guys a fortune. And uh, at some point, I don't know if it was BCG, but you had a consulting project for the Singaporean government. Is it fair to say that was a, a, an important turning point and milestone for you? Yeah, that was definitely a turning point. I think I made a a few big decisions in my life that all worked out. And there's a general theme of getting closer to who I really am versus what I was made to be by the environment. But one decision was starting a company and that was inspired by a field study that I did with a couple other students at the end of my business school, uh, studying what internet models worked at the time and which of those can be successfully adapted to Asia. And this is in 1999, really at the height of the internet boom in the US. And what we discovered was that most business models didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> there was a lot of hype, a lot of bubble, but we thought the eBay business model really is incredible. So I looked into whether anybody was doing that in China? And the answer was no in 1998. And so I said, oh, okay, when I graduate, I will go back to start the online auction website in China. And that was a huge step for me because up to that point, I was this steady person. I was a mass geek. And then even when I got a job, it was from a, one of the most established and prominent firms. It's all very understandable. It's like a very steady thing. And also, I also left my back door open. You know, my, uh, there's a way to back because I actually got a deferral in a uh, PhD program in physics when I initially took my job at BCG. So I had a, had a backup. <laughs> um, <laughs> so always very safe and steady. But going back to China, not getting a green car from the US in 1999 to start a company whose business model I couldn't even explain to my parents. I think I'm convinced to this day, <laughs> they do not know what that business is. I don't even sell things. I didn't even sell things. I was building a platform for other people to sell things. I didn't have a store even. No, no departments. Like, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling what that platform really means. So that was a big, big step. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing whatsoever, despite business school. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, well, ask a couple things. So how did your parents respond to this? Well, to their credit, they didn't say a thing. I was living at home when I got back to China in 1999. I had an office another, in another apartment, really. It's not an office, it's not an apartment building. I couldn't find anybody to work with me, really. I didn't know anybody, really, other than my high school classmates, because I was out of the country for, what, by then, eight years. So the only people I knew were my high school classmates. So the only, the first, my first recruit 
was a high school classmate of mine who was trading stock at home. So he didn't have much to lose. So he joined me. <laughs> you know, I couldn't find even programmers. Back then, building an internet website is not a thing. It was not a thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In 1999, China. It was all dial-up modems back then, by the way. There's some internet access, but it's all dial-up modems. My kids don't even know what dial modems are <laughs> these days. <laughs> and yeah, it's the only guy I found two part-time programmers who used to work for the Shanghai Electricity Bureau. They never built a website before ever. They were IT maintenance people, but they knew some Microsoft ASP la- programming language. They didn't want to quit their jobs. And so they, they would go to their regular bureau jobs, government jobs, and work from 6 p.m. to like midnight every night to build the website. And then they would go back to their regular jobs. Good thing the job is not very demanding, so they could sleep during the day in the office. And at <laughs> night, they work, uh, they work for us and work for me, I guess. So we have these basically four employees, three employees and me. Then they built the website uh, after, I think, two months, surprisingly. They just finished the website. Of course, as soon as they launched, it promptly cr- crashed. So um, it was a long... But the thing is, my parents didn't say anything. Like They just said, oh, okay, like... Really, to my father's credit, particularly, he knew that he didn't know what he didn't know. And he trusted me to make my own decisions. Do you know this is a leading question, of course, but is there any element of you already having sort of brought honor and reputation to the family through winning the competitions, going to Harvard, where effectively you had already passed any? test that you might need to pass in your father's <laughs> from his perspective or or is that do you think that's not a factor i think he was incredibly proud of me for sure winning so many mass competitions in china was a big deal when i initially was thinking about going overseas to study we even got a call from the shanghai government saying that oh we they wish that i do not leave before my senior year because in senior year I have the chance to participate potentially in the Mass Olympiads and win gold medals or whatnot for the country. And that will bring honor to the Shanghai government and all that. So he was very proud of me from that. And of course, going to Harvard is a big deal. I was one of the earliest, I think another student from Shanghai and myself got the whole foreign student thing directly coming from China started. That was the first year. I think after that, every year was two, three students getting full scholarships. So he was very, very proud, though putting myself in his shoes, like imagining my own kid giving all of that up, even including a green card in the U.S., which is this incredible, valuable, you know, unattainable thing most people view, to go back to China to start something in the startup thing, entrepreneurship is unheard of in China, more or less in China back, back then. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you, I guess you start a food store. You don't start companies, really, back then. So for them not to say anything to me, to question or not, I think it's still a big deal. I really... Still a big really, deal, yeah. Yeah, I really, really value them for it. So let's take a look into your experience during that time. Because it does, it does seem pretty wild, given all of the factors. BCG can pay well. Consulting certainly can pay well. You're coming out of Harvard. Your parents previously making $10 to $20 a month. Suddenly you're in a position to get a green card, 
to take any number of jobs that would pay you who knows how much money. I have no idea, but you know, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, who knows more, maybe. What was going on internally in your mind or otherwise that gave you? You're certainly a highly rational person, so I don't believe the decision to go to China to be an entrepreneur was an impulsive move mm. that wasn't thought through. So how did you think through the pros and cons and risks of doing that? Because from the outside looking in, without any explanation, it does kind of look crazy. Well, I was very rational, for sure. Actually, for a while, I was deciding between going back to BCG versus going, going to work for Goldman Sachs. And uh, we're at in some intern doing the middle of my business school. Yeah, both known for paying more than minimum wage generally. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think I was definitely could have made more than $100,000 a year at age 25. But I was preparing even a spreadsheet, sort of listing the pros and cons. And I think one person I met who was a senior person at BCG in China asked me a question. I was like, what do you want to do? Putting aside all these pros and cons, what do you want to do? And that, that sort of stumped me, actually, because I didn't <laughs> really know what I want. <laughs> I wanted. And all my life, frankly, nobody really asked me that question, what I wanted, up until that point. I think one big decision I made for myself was to be with my now wife, then girlfriend. That was a huge thing for me, which we can go back to. But in terms of career, I was just going to through whatever the most popular thing was. You know, BCG, when I graduated from college, was the most popular career choice, BCG and McKinsey, and got an offer from both. Then after BCG, going to business school was the most popular choice after two years. So I got an offer from both Stanford and Harvard Business School. That was the clear choice. Going to, back to China, however, was not a popular choice. And I think, not a, I think about 12 Chinese students in the Harvard Business School graduate class of my year, I think I was the only person going back to China. Now, actually, a few years later, all, all, I think 10 of the 12 eventually all went back to China. That's a different story. But I, that was not popular back then. And starting companies certainly wasn't popular. Uh, I guess, well, take it back. I think starting internet companies in 1999, 1998, 1999 might have been popular choice. But I don't think I was driven by that. I think I was driven because I really saw an opportunity and I felt that it's such a good business and it will, it should be created. I think there was this kind of belief that this is a business worthwhile to be created. And since, since nobody else is doing it, I should be doing it. Now, of course, I didn't know that back then several other companies were preparing to launch. So I definitely wasn't the only or even the first one to launch, but I felt like this is something that should happen. If we look at that decision, you had this conversation with a BCG partner in China who asked you what you really wanted and you saw this opportunity, did you also have a contingency plan in the case that it didn't work out? Oh, yes, I did, actually. I told BCG, their senior partner in China, that I will start the business for a few months. After a few months, the business should be in good shape. Then I'll go back to BCG. <laughs> we'll have it all figured out in a few months. Oh. No, everything out, it will be steady, it will be autopilot, and then I can go work with people. <laughs> I have no idea what he thought about my, I think his name is John Wong, and what he thought about what I said at the time. 
But he was very generous and he said, okay, that's okay. And he agreed to it. I think he held my place for at least a year. So this is really important. And I know I've said that about a number of points, but it's so common for, I think, I would usually get, it shows you, you were talking about dial-up modems. You know, I, I need to stop using the example of like people on magazine covers because now the only time you ever see magazines is in the airport. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> not really a thing anymore. But the profiles and so on that you read about entrepreneurs tend to be turned into these romanticized action movies. And there's certainly a lot of action, but when someone says you know, Zuckerberg dropped out of college, right? And people hear that and they think, oh my God, he threw it all away, burned the ships, bet it all. And it's like, actually, that's not, <laughs> that's not <laughs> what happened. Because in many of these schools, you have the ability to defer graduation or come back over a certain period of time, or maybe at any point in time. And it's, I think, helpful for would-be entrepreneurs to hear that oftentimes the best entrepreneurs do take calculated risks, but they also mitigate risk, right? So you had had this conversation and you had, in a sense, a safety net of sorts so that you could do this experiment and see what would happen with the company. And I, I think that it's, it's really helpful to kind of peek behind the scenes. That's a good point. So if we go back to the company, at the time when you were first getting started with the IT guys who were sleeping in the office during their day job and working at night, what was the name of the company? It's called EachNet, like, like each and everybody's net. Okay, and EachNet. In, yeah, in Chinese means interesting exchanges. Interesting exchanges. How do you say that in Chinese? Or what was the name? Yi means exchange, Chu means interesting or fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. The sound actually works. The translation works. That's cool. So it's it's a transliteration, but you also have the meaning. Which, by the way, anyone listening, when you ask someone, when you if you ever ask a Chinese person to write my name in Chinese, part of the reason it's so hard <laughs> is you have to think very carefully about what the characters mean. You can't just <laughs> grab the phonetics and That's just right. throw something on paper. You have to be very careful about <laughs> what the actual meaning is. And, you know, I actually, I don't know if I ever told you, Bo, when I first went to China and was studying at the Beijing, what is it in English? I can't even remember the Beijing Jingji Maoyi Daoxue, the oh, yeah. Beijing Capital University of Business and Economics. And I had been given my name, my Chinese name, at Princeton, which was Fei Tingcheng. And mm -hmm. Fei Tingcheng was Fei, which is like Xiao Fei, the Fei. So yeah. it's a sort of expense in a way <laughs> is, is the meaning. Xiao Fei would be a, like a tip, like uh -huh. maybe yeah. Spanish or whatever. But funny enough, you were saying that your parents would call you like little, little Bo, right? Yeah, <laughs> so right, right. If people <laughs> use that with me, my name meant <laughs> tip. But so that was problem number one with my Chinese name. So Fei was for my last name, Ferris, right? And then yeah. Ting Cheng. So the T sound was yeah. Tim. And they, they used Cheng with Yan Zipan. Because I was always so blunt in class, it was like, Oh, I see. Tim, very honest, because I was a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, but the problem with that name, or one of the problems, I'll give two examples of problems when I got to China and you're telling people your name and it's a strange kind of transliterated foreign name. It's not always clear what the hell you're saying. And so some people thought 
my name was Feiji Chang, which is airport, oh, right? Yes. So that was a problem. They're like, your name is airport. That's strange. Other people heard my name as Fei Ting Chang instead of Chang. And so <laughs> Tim Very Long also has problems. So ultimately, we changed my name to Fei Yu Chang. And Yu is like a <laughs> but without the Zhi at the bottom. It's a pretty um, rare character mm. but anyway so this is just a long way of saying you have to you have to think very carefully about how you name things in yeah by the way the for the readers for the listeners who do not know chinese i would say your chinese is actually really good your chinese pronunciation is very good oh uh, thanks man it's very rusty but i hope to get back at some point get back to china because the china i know is 1996 china i mean this is like people's liberation oh yeah my green God. jackets silk yeah. road with DVDs, burners inside jackets, and bicycles. I mean, that's the Beijing I know. I've got to take you back to China. You will be just shocked. Your, your jaw will be on the floor. Yeah, visit the sci-fi future. So coming back to each net, when did you actually feel like it was working or you thought to yourself, oh my God, this might actually work? Like, When was that moment? Or what were some of the signs, any signs where you're like, okay, maybe this is the thing? It's a constant roller coaster. So there are many moments I would say, oh, this is working. But then the other moments, holy shit, this is not working. It goes up and down. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there'll be times when we raise, you know, initially we raise, I think I'd raise a small angel around like a few, three, four hundred K, but then we raise. $6.5 million, I think, in October of 1999. And that was a lot of money back then. And yeah. then, these days, a Series A of $6.5 million is really very small. But back then, it's actually a fairly substantial amount of money. So definitely, I thought, oh, things are going well. But then, it turns out five months later, I spent it all. Five months. <laughs> and the thing is, I didn't even know I spent it all. At one point, my financial controller came to say, do you know that we have no more money, that we're not going to pay with salary next month? I said, really? I didn't even know. Like, that's, that's how God. little I know about really running a business. It's actually really thinking back. It's pretty, it's pretty embarrassing for a math champion. <laughs> that's right. That's clearly things were not working. <laughs> and then we need to, to I guess what we call it, in Chinese will be 拉紧裤腰带, which means that you have to tighten your belts, I guess. Tighten your belt, yeah. What did you spend all that money on? Advertising. Ah. We were one of, I think we might be the old, the first internet company in China to do TV advertising. Oh, TV, wow. Yeah, so wow. we had commercials made. It was very exciting and all that. And we got a lot of users. And of course, our website crashed all the time. And at one point, I was afraid to go onto my own website. The thinking being that, I might be the last straw that breaks the camel's off. <laughs> I don't want to add any load to our servers. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. I just give that valuable opportunity to somebody actually who will find it so useful. <laughs> right, so quick question. The TV commercial, I bet you still remember parts of that TV commercial. What did you say? Do you remember any of it in Chinese? And then you can explain what it is in English. Do you remember any of it? I recall that our logo looked like two E's facing each other. Two E's with the other one being a mirror image of the other E facing each uh -huh. other. And I remember the TV commercials around sort of like, I remember this logo of two E's. One is 
orange one is green instead of talking to each other or playing with each other or something like that. <laughs> that I do recall. But other than what they what? actually said to each other, I do not recall anymore. <laughs> What was your tagline? Did you have a tagline for the company in, in Chinese or anything like that? Yeah, the fun in exchanges. 交易的乐趣, which in you know, uh-huh. English means the, the fun in, in exchanges. That's good. I like that. <laughs> uh, all right. So awesome TV commercial. You're not even on your own site because you don't want to crash the servers. And you run out of money and your controller's like, uh, Bo, we have a small problem. We're not going to be able to make payroll. What happens? Well, we uh, were able to get everybody in your belt. That's right. I think I actually got the team in play to, to get and say, oh, "Okay, we have no more money, and we all need to take a pay cut." So I think we all took like a fifty percent pay cut. Existing investors ponied up a few million dollars to bridge us. They were ultimately willing to do that, which I'm very grateful for. And then we went on a fundraising tour, and of course, in I think it was around. February or March in 2000, the market crashed. The initial reception was very positive. People, without knowing the company, said, we're going to write you a $50 million check. But then the market crashed and all of it basically went away. Just evaporates. I remember Credit First Boston was our banker to try to raise money for us. And uh, we had a lead, which shall remain unnamed. Uh, Actually, no. (laughs) Was willing to write a, initially was 50. And then became 20. The one day I looked at, and I read Wall Street Journal, and on the front page, it says this firm is in trouble. When I read that, I said, oh, oh, that's not good news. They're probably not going to honor their commitment. So I thought about what I'm going to say if the firm calls me to renege on their verbal commitment or their term sheet. I decided to ask them for 5 million instead of 20. I said, if you give me 5 million, I'll first guilt trip them, saying how much trouble they got me in because I was counting on their money and all that. And then I was, I'll make a request. I need five million, not 20. If you give me five, I will raise the rest of the 20. So lo and behold, the next day indeed, this person <laughs> from this room called. And Good said thing you saw that newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And he said he, they need to just withdraw together. And I gave him my prepared spiel. And he said, that he will go back internally to see what he can do. Now, if I had said that, thank you, I understand, or this is over, if I didn't make a specific request and it didn't prepare, this would have been over. Yeah. Instead, I made a specific request that has a chance of being honored. And then I had a very good friend who went to the boss and tried to reason and try to cajole. So eventually we did get 5 million. And then I begged many people to put in half a million or a million or whatnot. And eventually we were able to raise $20 million. Wow. And that's how the company survived and thrived. Did you have a backup plan in case the immediate answer was no? Did you have, say, if they say no to 5 million, I'm going to come back with this other request? That was plan B. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was no backup. I think we would have to dissolve, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know what the existing investor would have done, but I think it would be hard pressed for them to put up a lot more money without profitability insight. I have to ask you, Bo, because I've noticed this in many of our conversations. You have an incredibly broad English 
vocabulary, like cajole, right? I mean, there, you, you have a very nuanced English vocabulary, which is not always the case. It's actually rarely the case, I find, with a lot of non-native speakers. How did you accumulate such a vocabulary? I guess I have Harvard to thank. <laughs> Was it Harvard? Because I know a lot of native speakers I went to Princeton with who do not have your vocabulary. <laughs> so what happened was um, when I was applying for college in the U.S. in you know 1990 when I was in China in my junior year of high school, I couldn't provide standardized testing results because SAT was not offered in China at the time. Now I think it is. So... I can take the TOEFL, which is the English test for foreigners, which I passed and did very well in, but the school still wanted some kind of standardized test results, just like the SATs. And in fact, I couldn't apply to MIT because of it, because MIT was not willing to give a waiver of SAT. If I got into MIT, I probably would have gone to MIT given my orientation at the time. But I was able to convince Harvard and other schools to take the GRE. And GRE being the graduate record examination, which is for PhD programs. And that was offered in China. So I took the GRE test and aced it. I, I think I got 2260. I think it was like the third highest in the country at that time or something like that. And that helped the application process. But one of the GRE, I don't know if it still does or not, but it has uh, had a verbal section, which is basically testing your vocabulary. And I remember it was much harder than the SAT verbal sections. Much, it's much harder. harder. Yeah, much harder. So I remember getting this huge book of words that I needed to remember. And I just spent several, probably one or two months just studying that book, remembering every word. What happens internally or what do you do when you need to focus for an extended period of time? Because you, you have that as a superpower. When you need to say sit down, if you had a new test coming up and needed to sit down and study something, what does both studying mm. look like? And that could be things that you do or how you prepare, but it could also be your internal state shift or internal monologue or self-talk, anything. I think it turns out that I learned how to meditate without knowing that it was meditation. I have a very good ability to focus because of that. And I think the meditation I did was when I tried to add the poker cards together when I was very young. And to add 50 cards, 52 cards together in 12, that 12 seconds, I needed to get rid of all thought. If I start worrying, if I start trying to consciously add it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be that fast. So I need to get myself out of the way. I remember looking up into the sky or into the ceiling and just, there's a particular way I blanked my mind. Mine can still see, of course, but there is a particular process of suppressing thought, I guess, or getting out of the egoic kind of self and with no attachment also. Another key thing was no attachment to the result because the more attached I became, the more agitated and I was thinking that it wouldn't work and then I fail. And then actually there'd be times when I was basically cried because I could do 20, 30 times in a row and either they were wrong or 
it took too much time so that it doesn't count. I need to get 10 times right under the right uh, limit every day. And the limit kept decreasing as I became more successful. And my father said it that way. So was sometimes at the end of my rope and I needed to blank my mind and also not to feel any kind of attachment to how I do. And that's when I did my best work. And to me, that's in some ways just meditation. <laughs> and I think I was able to develop that muscle without knowing that it's actually really a form of meditation. Yeah, it certainly strikes me as meditation. And I think a lot of athletes also enter meditative states without calling it meditation. Thank you for answering that question. I've actually always wondered that about you. So if we come back to EachNet, how'd that turn out? Just so people kind of know how the movie ends in a sense. We can do a whole session on this, but I want to be very short about it. But, you know, it's basically, it became successful, became the largest e-commerce company in China. We sold it to eBay for a price I couldn't say no to <laughs> in 2003. And I retired after that. And unfortunately, I was actually, my, I was planning to run it, but a family tragedy prevented me from doing it. I needed to be with my wife to support her. So I ended up not running the firm a couple months after I sold it. And then eBay did not do well. I still feel sad about it because it was my baby. And for many reasons, a multinational company like eBay couldn't do well in China. So we went from 80 plus percent market share in e-commerce down to 5% in a matter of a few, few years. Jack Ma at the time was in the B2B business e-commerce, but he launched the e-commerce B2C, C2C e-commerce business right around the time when I sold my company. And the company is called Taobao. The, the new company started is called Taobao, which became the biggest e-commerce player in China after about 10 years or so. While eBay really struggled, despite having a huge head start. People say this, the rest is history. <laughs> you mentioned your wife, and you mentioned also earlier in the conversation how important it sounded like meeting her and committing to that relationship was. Could you expand on that? Especially because you also confessed earlier that you viewed emotions as distractions. <laughs> so, I, so I'd love for you to say a bit more about all of that. I think I met her and I just simply fell in love with her head over heels. A truck hit me and I didn't even know what happened. Where did you meet? I was in business school and she was in the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. So she was the last year, a last few months of her time there. And I was doing my first year of business school. And I fell in love, became very irrational. I started just basic things. I believe that <laughs> she is meant to be with me and I'm meant to be with her. I had no fear, no worry. I went all out. And the biggest mystery in some ways is that she loves me back. <laughs> she loved me and loves me back, even though I was very flawed at the time. But I guess in front of her, I was emotional. I was extremely passionate. I was considerate. I let all the things I suppressed, I think, show up in a way that was not conscious. It was out of my control. And 
without her, I don't think I would be the person that I'm today. So it's not only I have a lag companion and my best friend, but also that, you know, being with her enable me to blossom. Whatever that was hidden deep and buried, blossom. Now, to be clear, I only was that way with her. For the longest time, I was still the same cold, unemotional, analytical, judgmental me with everybody else <laughs> for many years after that. <laughs> so there will be, you know, very incongruent jackal and hide kind of uh, scenarios where I will be just lecturing my employees in a very kind of analytical and judgmental way. Then my phone would ring. I'll pick up. I became like a little kitten talking to her in small voices. I love you and I miss you, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I went back straight to the old straight-faced robot that I was. <laughs> Many people have commented that I was like at the time. <laughs> so you, you retire. Well, how old were you when you retired? And I'm going to put that in quotation marks. I was 29 years old. I was surprised actually, because after the first few months of, first really, for first week of ecstasy, I was famous, I was on TV all the time and everything. Life was the same as before. <laughs> Funny how that happens, yeah. <laughs> and it was a disorienting because I think I built a picture, I think most people probably do, that somehow you sort of, when you reach that level, your life will become different. In some ways, we are, I wasn't even sure what I was searching for, but whatever I was searching for, I felt like, oh, if you get that kind of success, whatever you searched for, you would have <laughs> found it. But actually, it didn't happen. I was still the same old me, and uh, very little changed. We may just have to have a round two at some point, and obviously, we <laughs> talk a lot separately, so maybe we can figure that out. But I know that we have, let's just call it, how much more time do you have? like 20 minutes, I have 30 another minutes. 30 minutes or so. Yeah, okay. So we have another 30 minutes and we may dig into this separately. You did. You ended up doing many things after that. You were a founding partner of Matrix China, which manages more than $7 billion and has funded more than 500 companies, 50 plus of which have become unicorns. There's more to the resume, obviously. And you continue to be uh, hard charging in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the resume is not the most important part about me, and what which I want to. Right. So, to. The, so this is the <laughs> well, this is the segue, which is the way we met was in part around the discussion of inner journey and turning the eye and attention inward. Right, we we didn't meet at a business networking event. We weren't doing a joint venture together. We met in a very personal context. How did that start for you? How did that process? And I know process is a broad term, but when did that become a priority, and how did it become a priority for you? First, I would say that I had no interest in any kind of inner work for a long, long time. In fact, I would look down on people who go to retreats or meditations, whatnot, and say, what the hell are these people doing? They have better things to do in life. I was sort <laughs> of, I found almost disgusting, despicable back then, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had no interest, but life, I think, has a way of 
if one pays attention, I guess, to send little reminders. So the first reminder I got was, hey, you know, I was still the same me with some of the same kind of patterns of behavior, the same level of happiness and joy that I had before the big success. And looking back, I realized that compared to the life I have today, the life back then was more of a black and white television, and today is more colorful television. It's hard to describe the difference if I only watched black and white television all my life. The reason I use this example was, you know, because I grew up with a nine-inch black and white television, which felt totally fine for all my life. And without having seen a 80-inch, you know, color television, the nine-inch black and white looked completely adequate and comfortable. And I think that's where I was back then. My life didn't have a lot of color, didn't have joy. I never cried, really. I never laughed, never smiled, really. I never even felt lonely, interestingly. I felt alone, but not lonely. But I think some of these things showed up a little bit. Like, oh, I sort of start wondering, what am I missing? There's a little, little, little things I think, but very small. On that alone, I don't think I would have embarked on the journey. Another reminder was how different my life was with Jenny, my wife, versus with other people. And also I see how she behaves with other people in a way that's sort of beyond my comprehension. I remember like one time she was, we were having dinner with a friend and the friend started talking about how he lost his father. And my wife just stood up and went to hug him. And I was dumbfounded. It never would occur to me to do it. She's telling a story, I'm listening, but I was not in touch with the emotional content of the story. And my wife clearly was, and she is one of the most empathetic person alive that I know. So some part of me started wondering, what's going on? What am I missing? And also I noticed that I could work with people for a decade and not become friends with them, but she would then go to dinner with their significant other, the four of us will go to dinner or lunch, and then she becomes friends with them, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I've known them for 10 years and she knows them for like one day. So that sort of started sounding like, you know, am I missing something? Is friendship something I value? Because up until a few years ago, I didn't consider myself as having friends, but I always told myself I don't need friends. I want to ask, actually, just a follow-up there. Why did you not consider yourself to have friends? Is it because you viewed getting close to people as having little upside and a lot of potential downside? Why did you see things that way? It was not a rational decision. I think deep down, if I were to answer honestly, is because I think I don't deserve a friend. And... Uh, um. I think, I thought, and there's still a part of me, probably still thinks that there's something wrong with me, that I don't deserve any friends, that nobody would really take an interest in my feelings and in what I have to say, unless what I have to say is useful. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in a position, I'm a board member, investor, or somebody who could educate or whatever, or help, then I feel comfortable. Like this relationship has substance. But if it's simply a friendship, 
a part of me doesn't understand it. Like, it doesn't feel that why would you or other people take an interest in the inside of me? And uh, I didn't have that trust. Uh, of course, it has to do, this has a lot to do with how I was brought up. And I'm still in the process of understanding and feeling it fully. But I've told myself for the longest time I don't need any friends. At least that's the conscious thought. <laughs> the deeper down, you know, realization happened much more slowly. And I think it's still happening as we speak. It's a continuous journey of discovery and being free from those patterns I developed. So that's the second thing that, you know, in terms of friendship and relationship with other people, I see myself with Jenny in a different way. I see Jenny with other people in a different way. That's all got me thinking a little bit. Is it okay if I continue on this round? Absolutely, of course. All right, and then, and the third, which I think is probably the biggest one that I couldn't avoid looking at was being a father. I was a terrible father. You know, for a while on, on the Chinese Twitter, Weibo, I was a, was a very reasonably popular and a lot of people followed me. And my model, I guess, whatever I wrote, right under my name was a perfect husband, but a so-so father. <laughs> and I think I was giving myself too much credit. I don't think I was a so-so father. I think I was a terrible father looking back. I didn't know how to be one. I knew how to be a teacher. I knew how to be a disciplinary, but I didn't know how to be a father the way I understand it now. And uh, I didn't know how to spend time with them. I did not know how to give them love and attention. I didn't know how to give them support when they need it, emotional support in particular when they need it. And I also just did not enjoy being a father. I remember and my wife will remind me to go spend time with my kids when say, it's eight o'clock at night or something like that before they go to bed, before they went to bed. And my thought at the time was, why should I? And I felt some kind of resentment being called to do my job. <laughs> It was really funny thinking back, but back then I really didn't enjoy it. And that got me thinking a little bit, hey, there's something missing here that, you know, people talk about being a father, being enjoyable, but I really didn't enjoy it. And also I know that I knew that I was doing something wrong because I was repeating some of the mistakes that my father made that was sort of shocking because you would imagine that you would never do what was done to you that he didn't like. But I was repeating the same thing. And if my wife didn't stop me, I would have been worse, far worse. So one of the things that my father, for example, did to me is if he got really angry, he would threaten to throw me out of the home. And I did that to my son. And that was very traumatic for him. He still remembers it today. Even for like two seconds, closing the door on him. It was so bad. But I didn't know what else to do. That was all I knew. When I got desperate as a father, when something happens outside of my control, I got desperate. So I guess I resorted to what worked. Because from a short-term perspective, what my father did to me worked. I became obedient. Thank you for sharing, Bo. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. I think it's going to be meaningful to a lot of people. And I'd love to hear, as you began 
observing these behaviors as perhaps Jenny called things to your attention and you decided to try to change or at least become more aware, what are some of the things that you found helpful? What are some of the tools or modalities that end up being helpful? Because I would imagine in the beginning, certainly I had this experience myself, <laughs> it's hard to know where to begin, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's kind of like a chimpanzee with a mirror or something. Like you're looking behind the mirror, you're like, am I supposed to see something over here? Or am I supposed to see something over, <laughs> here, over there? And I would just love to hear, because I know that you have tested many, many, many different things. What are some of, say, the tools, modalities, or otherwise that you have found to be personally helpful? I definitely tried many different things. I, in some ways, I'm I like you, Tim, that I when I get on something I really that's important, then I would want to get to the bottom of it. I want to learn the best or from the best. First of all, I would say that there are three components to being a good parent that I've learned. And these are not necessarily, they might be orthogonal to each other, meaning they're, you know, being good at one component doesn't mean necessarily going to be good at the second component. So the three components in my view is one is understanding what's going on inside of our children's heads and what's going on in their biology, in their psychology. And the amazing thing is we are, children are so different from us. We assume that they should have executive control of their body or of their mind or their actions. But the reality is, for example, for a boy, their prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until they're in their 20s. So when they are 12, expecting them to behave in a disciplined way is simply not right. So understanding what's going on inside of them is hugely, hugely important. From a developmental perspective, you mean? That's right, from a developmental perspective, both from a physical neurobiology as well from a psychological development perspective. And there's a huge amount of science out there unfortunately, hasn't been made available and accessible to parents, which is one of the things one of our companies is working on. And the second is, as parents, why do we get triggered? Why did I get triggered in certain ways? Uh, my reactive patterns, which were usually formed very early on in my own childhood, maybe my own insecurity gets reflected in certain things, and then that's why we get triggered. So, for example, if a parent always wish they went to the best schools and they were feeling down on themselves for not having gone to the best schools, they're probably going to be more demanding of the child. And if the child has bad grades, they probably tend to be more triggered. So there's all sorts of things we need to understand about our own self and our own childhood that would enable us to be a better parent. And so in some ways, I went into a lot of these workshops thinking that I just need to learn a tool or a trick or some kind of way, like positive discipline or whatever it is to be a better parent. And to a certain extent, those tools and modalities help. But foundational-wise, I needed to be, become a better person, quote-unquote, in some ways, to be a better parent. And that has to do everything to do with our inner journey as an independent person and has nothing to do with us being a parent, actually. It's, 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 it's something that's really, really foundational. And then the third is what's in the relational field between a parent and a child. And becoming aware of that relational field any moment in time is really critical because when that relational field is not right, 
no amount of teaching on the rational side and analytical side will help because the kid's brain is underdeveloped. So when they don't feel safe and connected, they can't listen. When a typical parent sees a child children not listening, maybe their reaction is try to say things more clearly, <laughs> you know, repeat things. It doesn't really help. And what's needed is for the children to feel safe and connected. And then they will listen a hundred times better. So these three components, understanding the, the children inside of them, understanding ourselves, understanding the relational field, for me, that's the foundation. Then on top of the foundation, there are lots of tools that's actually very useful. I find that to be so important. It's shocking to me that now looking back that being a parent is probably the most important job in one's life. There's nothing more important. It's probably the most difficult job and we are least prepared for in our lives. We go to school for teaching math. We go to get, get driving lessons to get a driver's license so we can drive. But to be a parent, there's practically no preparation. So if we look at those three foundational pillars, and I think it is really, it's a really good reminder to sort of look at the first principles, uh, at least as you've sort of arrived at them as these pillars so that you don't get lost in a sea of tactics without any elemental discipline about how you approach them, right? Because you can just end up with this Frankenstein's monster of approaches that doesn't <laughs> really have any focus to it. I know that, for instance, you've explored nonviolent communication. I know you've explored uh, the work, so testing beliefs mm -hmm. that you have in certain ways. People can find more on that if they look up the work in Byron Katie. What are other books or resources or tools that you have found particularly effective for you in, in helping any of the pillars that you described, any of those three? Yeah. Um, well, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, right. And we, when I say we, that means we are starting, I've started a company three, four years ago that we have done now really three years of research and development, trying to collect the best parenting tools, the best research around child psychology and development into something that's accessible and easy and customized for parents to understand. Now that's ongoing and we have a product, but I think it will get better in the next couple of months when we launch the, the full version. But one of the things I find, and the reason taking so long is I feel that there are so many different kinds of kids and the parenting challenges can be very different. And then certain ways of parenting works for certain kids in certain situations, and there's no one size fit all. So it's really important to collect all the tools out there and develop a framework, a knowledge graph, so that the right tools and modalities and tricks can be recommended to the right children, the right parents, the right situation. For myself, as we work on this, one particular thing that has worked for me is a something called hand-in-hand -hand parenting, started by this lady, Patty Whiffler, and there's a website called hand -in, I think if you search for hand-in-hand -hand parenting, I find their tools to be very useful for me. They has a particular emphasis on the relationship between children and parents, so that's a, that's a particular emphasis. But I'm not sure they would necessarily help everybody, but I, I think they can help a lot of people. So 
I think there are other models called, called, you know, I, I don't want to mention them because I don't know them as well. But I think in the next couple of months, our app should be ready for prime time. And then, um, then I think uh, I'm hoping that will help a lot of people. So hand-in-hand parenting. I believe you have also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, spent some time with the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. But a lot of those commitments, you know, I've had Jim Detmer and uh, Diana Chapman on the podcast apply to personal relationships, not just leadership. And this is actually something my girlfriend and I are spending a good amount of time on right now is trying to make implicit agreements, which really aren't agreements, they're assumptions, right? (laughs) Implicit assumptions, explicit commitments so that there's cleaner understanding, less misunderstanding, etc. We can go in a number of different directions. And I know that you're doing certainly a lot with Evolve, both on the foundation side and on the Evolve Ventures impact investing side. People can find both at Evolve VF. That's V as in Victor, F as in Frank. So EvolveVF.com. I would like to ask you, because I know that you have supported research and have developed quite a bit of familiarity with the field. What do you think is missing right now from the discussion around psychedelics or therapeutics related to psychedelics at the moment? I think psychedelics is a one of the most powerful tools that we are given, both for healing of trauma as well as opening ourselves up to a certain aspect of reality that has profound love and unity and safety that's inherent to us and to reality that we normally do not see. And those experiences simply just can can be profound. For me, these experiences are the starting point rather than the end points of one's personal journey. I think they play an incredible role to motivate people. It's almost like here, I, I, let me take you on a helicopter tour of the terrain, terrain so you can see what the big picture is. You can see what the destination looks like. But then the helicopter will land you back more or less where you started. But then you need to do the personal work so that you could experience that you know, one-time insight more regularly in life. And also to, that's what, and then also to apply it in one's life is really difficult. I think spiritual experiences tend to be overvalued. Oh, I had this incredible breakthrough. I saw whatever God, the Buddha or Guan Yin or this incredible vista of reality. But those, these are so clear and our culture values these kind of milestones or things you can talk about so strongly, so highly that the hard work almost you know, there's this kind of myth of medicine doing us the doing the work for us, which is you know, so almost this model of the Western medicine. If it takes medicine, cures you, and psychedelics sort of can fit into that kind of conversation or framework. But for me, it's an incredibly maybe the most important tool we have for healing and for opening up. But then one needs to do the hard work to integrate those experiences into our daily lives as a father as a wife, as a spouse, as a friend, as a CEO, as an investor, as an executive, you know, as an employee, all of those things. And we have so many patterns of behavior 
that's deeply ingrained in us over our childhood and growing up that one or two or 10 one-time experiences do not erase them. So a teacher might talk about waking up and waking down. And waking up is actually not, not easy, but it's easier than waking down. And when I say waking down means integrating the waking up experience, what you see into them, back into our body, back into our daily lives and work and practice it and then overcome the patterns. And that's the hard work that maybe do not get in much attention, I think. Yeah, it's easier to spin a colorful story about the waking up. And it's very understandable and it's compelling and it's often fleeting if we sort of return back to all of the invisible scripts that on some level (laughs) run each and every one of us, like you said. Right. It's very easy to step off of the helicopter and just turn around away from the train you just surveyed and walk back <laughs> to where you were. That's right. Uh, if anything, it sometimes can even add to your ego. Oh, I had this experience. I'm enlightened now. Right. If for certain personalities, having some of these experiences actually could be negative. Yeah, this is true. It's uh, perhaps surprisingly common how Messiah complex is. <laughs> and uh, so it's good to be cognizant of. Now, if, if people go to the EvolveVF.com website, they can see on the for-profit side, they can see your investments, which, which I think is actually, it's a, it's a fascinating read. People can look at the investments on the for-profit side. They can look at the grants on the foundation side, uh, certainly learn more about what Evolve does and what Evolve doesn't do, the leadership team. Is there anything else that you would like to say or share about Evolve or any requests you'd like to make of the audience or suggestions or anything really that you'd like to mm, like okay. to add to the conversation? I guess I would say one thing, which is I think I'm a, coming from a rational point of view, going back to rational, okay? And what I find is, we spend a lot of time optimizing our lives, particularly our work, finding the right job, negotiating packages. You know, we think about doing, you know, if we assign a task and work, we prepare a lot for it. We spend hours and days and weeks on working on particular things. If we need to learn a skill, Excel or whatever it is, we spend a lot of time learning it. However, when it comes to internal work, whether it's to understand ourselves, or understanding our self as a parents, parenting skills, finding a meditation teacher, all these things. What I find is most people don't spend nearly as much time finding the right teacher, finding the right material. It's almost like this kind of latch on to the first one. If it works great, if not, I give up on it or whatnot. It's not the approach one normally takes in other work. But for some reason, when it comes to inner work, there's a bit of a almost casualness, maybe because they don't know there are better resources out there. Like, so one thing that I would encourage everybody to do is when it comes to inner work, whether it's meditation or trying to become a better parent or whatnot, really spend the time, at least as much time as what you spend on doing external work. Yeah, it's very good advice. It's really, really good advice. It's so easy to become attached 
to the first teacher you find in a given discipline with respect to inner work, which is very understandable, right? Because you, you are sort of on some level shown a side of yourself or a side of reality with or without any type of pharmacological intervention that is so unusual, perhaps so compelling, so beneficial that you can attribute that experience and the value of that experience to the person who helped facilitate it. Right? And sometimes it's well-founded, but sometimes it's misplaced and you can become attached to an external agent who is acting upon you, which can be disabling in a way. Yeah. Oh, and, one more thing, Tim, if I can say. Absolutely. Is that we started this conversation, I think, talking about, I find people who are dedicated in a work like despicable or disgust or whatnot, right? And it's so funny that my views are so different now. And for a long time, I didn't want to commit myself. And for me, inner work has always been kind of afterthought. Like I fit into my schedule, my calendar, I would do it maybe once a quarter, once a month or something like that. It was never my priority. And at one point, I think maybe three, four years ago, I said to myself, you know what, for the next quarter, three months, I'm going to place as a priority my inner work, whether it's therapy work or, or different experiences. When I, I said, that's well, finding the right teacher. We're not going to retreats. That's my priority, but only for three months because I wasn't ready and willing to commit to too much. And once I made, however, even that temporary commitment, my progress changed. So if there's one thing I can say, one more thing I can say is just, it's around that is giving yourself the space to make a commitment, at least a temporary commitment. See what happens. Can you say, well, this is only four months. I'm going to do this regularly or whatnot and place as a priority on top of everything else I do and see what happens. Excellent advice. Bo, it is so nice to see you and hear your voice, my friend. It's uh, it's nice to reconnect. You know, I want to say, and uh, which, by the way, folks, if you've, ever, if you've ever wondered where long time no see comes from, it comes from Chinese. Uh, and uh, people can learn more about Evolve. I recommend people check it out at evolvevf.com. And I love that in your bio, there is no social media. And uh, that's, that's a rarity. You're one of, I guess, two guests. Are you active at all on social media or is, is that something you have deliberately removed? I deliberately removed myself on Weibo like 10 years ago or something like that when I noticed that I was posting to please other people. It became something that added to my ego and then started to grab me. And I start tracking how many people replied, how many people forwarded, how many people applauded. And it was not a source of happiness. Good for you. Good for you, man. So good. That is, uh, that is inspiring. I may need to, I'm, I may need to pursue that myself. <laughs> and uh, Bo, is there anything else you would like to say before we wrap up this conversation? One company I didn't mention is, you know, this parenting thing, which I thought was, wasn't quite ready yet. It's called Parent Lab. Lab is a laboratory. I hope that company will help a lot of people. I think the next month or two, depending on when this podcast gets out there, 
hopefully uh, people find it useful. Wonderful. And I will also, for everyone listening, provide show notes for this episode. So we'll have links to everything we've discussed. And if that is live, we'll have a link to that. And you can go to tim.blog slash podcast to find all episodes, but you can go to tim.blog slash bo, B-O, we'll create a short link and that will forward directly to the links and resources and so on from this particular episode. Well, Bo, thank you so much for carving out the time today. It's my pleasure. That was fun. Thank you. Super fun. And to everybody listening, be safe, experiment often, be easier on yourself than you think you should be, (laughs) at least at times. (laughs) Give exception and uh, be merciful with yourself. And thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off. And that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. My God, am I in love with 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades, tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum. But now, I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it, and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need cooling. She loves the heat. And we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now, for me, and for many people, the result, 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40%, and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery, so you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now, my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the Pod Pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to 8sleep.com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's 8, all spelled 
out E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tim or use coupon code Tim, T-I-M. Eightsleep.com slash Tim for $250 off your Pod Pro cover. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, which is part of my morning routine, also part of my afternoon routine. Routine saves me. So there are a number of ways that I use Four Sigmatic. In the mornings, I regularly start with their mushroom coffee instead of regular coffee, and it doesn't taste like mushroom. Let me explain this. First of all, zero sugar, zero calories, half the caffeine of regular coffee. It's easy on my stomach, tastes amazing, and all you have to do is add hot water. I use travel packets. I've been to probably a dozen countries with various products from Four Sigmatic, and their mushroom coffee is top of the list. That's number one. I travel with it. I recommend it. I give it to my employees. I give it to house guests. So if you're one of the 60% of Americans or more who drink coffee daily, consider switching it up. This stuff is amazing. That's part one. That is the cognitive enhancement side, easy on the system side, energizing side. The next is actually their chaga tea, which tastes delicious. It is decaf, completely decaf, and some may recognize chaga. It is nicknamed the king of the mushrooms. It is excellent for immune system support. So needless to say, I'm focused on that right now myself, and so I will often have that in the afternoons. They make all sorts of different mushroom blends. If you are doing exercises, I am on a daily basis to keep myself sane. Cordyceps, excellent for endurance. They have a whole slew of options that you can check out. Every single batch is third-party lab tested for heavy metals, allergens, all the bad stuff to make sure that what gets into your hands is what you want to put in your mouth. And they always offer a 100% money-back guarantee. So you can try it risk-free, why not? I've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling Lion's Mane coffee. I literally have a mug full of it in front of me right now. And this is just for you, my dear podcast listeners. Receive up to 39% off. I don't know how we arrived at 39%, but 39% off, it's a lot. Their best-selling Lion's Mane coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash Tim. This offer is only for you and is not available on their regular website. Go to foursigmatic, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M, M-A-T-I-C dot com slash Tim to get yourself some awesome and delicious mushroom coffee. Full discount is applied at checkout. 